Uh, our first reading this morning starts with Luke chapter 18, verses 18 to 27. So I'll give you a moment to find those in your Bibles. So that's Luke chapter 18, starting from verse 18. A certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honour your father and mother. All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad, because he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, Who then can be saved? Jesus replied, What is impossible with man is possible with God. And our second reading is from Romans chapter 7, verses 21 to 8, chapter 8, verse 2. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in the sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. Therefore, There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, We're going to stand and sing two songs now uh, before Ben will come up and bring us our sermon. Loving Father, we thank you uh, that we can come again today together as a church to spend some time in your word, a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Well, good morning, everybody. It's great to see you all here this morning. It feels like we're pretty much back to full capacity, which is a little bit sad in a way because it means that the uh, holiday period, the Christmas period is winding up. Uh, and probably like a lot of you here, I've spoken to a few of you, today marks the last day for me before the routines of 2024 kick off again uh, tomorrow. So Amy and the girls have all just had a nice week away um, down in central Otago, but tomorrow life begins back to usual. Awesome time of year though, isn't it? Good chance for us all to have a bit of a break, uh, recharge, switch off from the daily grind, But at the same time, I'm sure most of us here, during the downtime, our minds, uh, they wander a little bit, don't they? They, We quietly reflect on the year that's been. We reset, uh, we refocus on the year to come. 
What do we want to keep doing? What do we want to stop doing? What are some new things uh, that we want to add in? New Year's resolutions, it's sort of the catch-all term for it, isn't it? And uh, it happens all over the world, this ubiquitous drive for self-improvement and refinement to try to live a better life. This striving for betterment, uh, to chase perfection, it seems to be a universal aspect of the human character. Every religion of the world has one constant attribute, and that is that its followers must work and self-improve to try to attain the goal. Right? Whether it's undertaking physical tasks, honing personal discipline, dressing in a certain way, participating in uh, ceremonies and routines and festivals, learning to, to control your mind, whatever it is, all over the world it's the same. We just seem to be hardwired this way. And in the secular world it's no different, right? So here in the West where the uh, pervasive worldview is atheism and by definition the world uh, that we live in is random and meaningless, we still inundate ourselves with self-improvement initiatives, right? Which at the very heart of it, which is quite bizarre, is all about finding meaning and fulfilment and purpose. Here's some pretty crazy data. In the US alone, the self-improvement market is valued at 13.4 billion a year. This is what people spend on this stuff, right? Millennials, I just sneak into that category. We're spending two and a half billion a year on personal coaching. We're spending 760 million on self-improvement apps on our phones. So if you're one of those people that has quietly signed up for the Wim Hof breathing and the cold shower treatment to kick off 2024 on the app, it's okay. You're right, you're actually in good company. Over half a million people have done that in the last two weeks alone, right? So if you haven't heard of it, if you haven't got yourself a New Year's resolution, go and have a look at that uh, after lunch today. Cold showers, they are in vogue. That is the thing for 2024, and I wish you the very best of luck with that. <laughs> but we can't help ourselves, can we? World over, there is just something deep inside us that drives us to find peace or fulfilment by conditioning and improving ourselves. I think that we seem to have the instincts and the aspirations that indicate a noble origin and a noble purpose. And so as confused as we are all over the world, we strive in a thousand different ways to try to mould our very nature. Now it doesn't mean that we're all good at it, does it? Right? I reckon I could be a world record holder when it comes to the reflecting part and forming the plan for the new year. Amy will attest to that, it drives her nuts. But when it comes to execution, an abysmal failure, all right? But I thought, given that it is that time of year and when at the, at the very least we've at least uh, reflected on these things, I thought this morning maybe we could look at two phenomenally disciplined people, right? Disciplined, dedicated individuals. These were definitely New Year's resolution type people. I'm sure they would have done them and they would have succeeded. Uh, and let's look at the paths that they took to changing their nature and what lessons that they might have for us today. So firstly, we'll look at the rich young ruler. We heard from that uh, in the first uh, reading this morning from Luke. This guy was super impressive. He's only afforded a few uh, verses in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, we heard from Luke this morning. But look into, look into who this guy is, right? He's got every advantage that life can give. He's young, he's got youth on his side, he's rich, and he's a ruler with worldly authority, right? Uh, they, they sometimes can be perceived to be harsh, but he's also got the qualities that we consider prized. So he's sincere, he's earnest in the way that uh, he approaches Jesus. He's clearly a very moral man. 
And to achieve this, he had to have been a man of immense discipline uh, and dedication. He gives the utterly astounding answer to Jesus, uh, and Jesus doesn't refute him. He says that every one of the Ten Commandments that relate to human conduct, he has kept since he was a boy. Can you, can you think of anyone that you've met in your life? Think of the most, think of the best person you can think of, the most upright person, you know, the role model of your life. Can you think of that person? There is no way they would make a comment like that. It's an astounding comment, right? This guy is self-improvement personified. And when we think about his moral conduct, he's the stereotype of what the world considers that Christians are often striving to be, isn't it? So often Christians are accused of being hypocrites because we don't live up to, to high moral standards, and rightly so. But he wasn't a hypocrite. He was the exception. In terms of his conduct, he is probably the guy that you want your kids to be friends with at school, He's the guy that you want to have as your wingman because he will keep you on the straight and narrow. Youth, moral character, authority, self-discipline, wealth, sincerity. He appears to be the full package, doesn't he? But he's also not content, is he? His heart is still troubled. With everything that he's achieved, he has no assurance in his eternal state. There's deep down this fear of missing out. And so what must I do to inherit eternal life, we read this morning. In Matthew's account, he says, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? And so after working through all of the commandments that he has kept, Jesus, who knows this man intimately, he meets him at his level and he uniquely tests his heart, right? Go and sell everything you have and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and then come follow me. And when he heard this, the man became very sad. There's a great quote uh, from the German-Jewish theologian, uh, Moses Mendelssohn. This is what he says. He says, He who is robbed of the hope of attaining immortality is the most abject creature on earth. To his profound misfortune, he is forced to brood on his condition, to fear death, and to despair. I reckon that's probably a pretty good summation of how that rich young ruler felt when he walked away, right? Brooding on his condition, fearing death still, and despairing. So what's gone wrong here? How, how can a man who appears so earnest, so prepared to grasp onto eternity, how can he walk away in despair? How does a man who, on the face of it, should have had every ability to walk away blessed after meeting our Lord, how does he walk away empty-handed? Well, I think the Scriptures help us answer this in two parts. Firstly, how does he view Jesus? And secondly, how does he view himself? So how does he view Jesus? Well, he comes to him calling him simply good teacher. All right, in this man's mind, our Lord is relegated to simply a good moral teacher, a mentor perhaps, to give him another nugget of knowledge about how he can continue to improve. It's not overly dissimilar to uh, the way a lot of people would label Jesus today, is it? Good moral teacher, good guy. This man, who is clearly well-educated with the scriptures, right, and he's passionate about following God's law, he fails to recognise the person that he's actually talking to. When he calls Jesus good teacher, Jesus challenges him. He says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Jesus basically plays it back to him. He reaffirms the young man's opinion that he does not see Jesus as the son of God, but simply as a teacher. Jesus is effectively saying to him, you shouldn't call me good because God alone is good and clearly you don't think that I'm him. 
The young man doesn't come to him and fall down in humility or worship, but he comes to him like a good athlete might come to a good coach. Show me the next thing that I need to do to get a bit better and maybe to win. And so here is the colossal tragedy in that first passage that we read, that the rich young ruler, he comes asking for eternal life. And he fails to recognise that he's staring it right in the face. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die, Jesus says. I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And secondly, how does he view himself? Well, I think he views himself as a worthy man. A man with natural advantages, yep, but a man that's been responsible, he's been a good steward and he works hard to live uh, a worthy and acceptable life. Now, albeit we know he's still groping around for this final definitive task to complete, right? But he's confident that once he finds it, he will be one of the types of people that will be able to achieve it. There's a pride and there is a self-sufficiency that comes from his wealth and that comes from his ability to live a good life. And so it's on this basis, how does he view Jesus and how does he view himself, that the Lord responds to his question in a way that would specifically test his own heart and his own motives. Now, clearly simply just giving away his riches wouldn't benefit Right? Practically speaking, it probably just means that his family, his employees, his servants, the people, his businesses, they all become destitute. And whilst the Bible clearly warns us about the danger and the destructive nature of riches, uh, there's also nothing inherently wrong with them. So when we look at people like Abraham or Isaac or Jacob, Lot, Boaz, Joseph, Daniel, King David, Lydia, they're all, they're all rich people. Right? Some of them are fabulously wealthy. Uh, It wasn't simply his riches that were the fundamental issue. But Jesus does reveal the nature of the man's heart. His desire is to lead himself and to be his own master, right? Who does he see Jesus as? And his confidence and his ability to save himself, reinforced by the security of his riches and his discipline and the fact that he can lead a good life. Who does he see himself as? And so Jesus gives the man a hope that he can't jump through a task that was for him impossible. But even if he could have completed the task, right, even if he was able to give everything away, it still wouldn't have been enough because there's the follow-up, come, follow me. Had the young ruler begun to understand the enormous gulf that separates how far he thought his nature needed to change for him to be worthy of eternal life uh, compared to the, the, the level of change that our Lord requires, Perhaps then maybe he would have thought differently about trying to do it himself. Perhaps then he may have approached Jesus not as a good teacher, requesting knowledge or a task, but rather a saviour, requesting deliverance. Perhaps then the call to follow me uh, may have been heard, knowing that all of the other options were futile. The young man fails to appreciate just how far below God's standards that he sits. And so Jesus' call to follow me falls on deaf ears because the man still just wants to go and lead himself. It's this gulf of separation that's the heart of the matter, right? And even the disciples, they can't comprehend it. In verse 26, uh, they say, effectively, if the rich, if a man like this can't be saved, who can? Perhaps the disciples' minds had wandered back to what Jesus had said during the Sermon on the Mount. Can you remember a, a couple of the times Jesus uses 
a number of the laws of Moses to show that his definition of righteousness, his definition of holiness is all surpassing what we think is possible. Remember, murder was not simply killing, but anyone who is even angry with his brother uh, is not pure in heart and is subject to judgment. Adultery was not just committing the act, but uh, anyone that even looked at somebody lustfully uh, had committed that in their heart. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's one of the closing lines in that sermon. How on earth can we be perfect like our heavenly Father is perfect? That task feels insurmountable, doesn't it? Who can be saved? The disciples weren't wrong. It wasn't a crazy question. And so in today's passage, Jesus makes it clear that that part of our nature that needs to change, well, we can't. What is impossible with man, he says in verse 27. The gulf is just too big. If we try to change our nature through our own power, if we try to self-improve, get ourselves to the solution, then we will forever walk in sadness. But verse 27 shows that what is impossible for us is possible with God. So that leads us to a second uh, dedicated, disciplined person that we heard from this morning. The Apostle Paul, perhaps the only human uh, that makes a claim in the Bible uh, to have a life of perfection that would rival that of the rich young ruler, comes from Paul. He tells the Philippians in his epistle that as for righteousness based on the law, I was blameless. Another astounding comment, right, in terms of his conduct and his ability to follow the law. Paul was just like the rich young ruler. He grew up with advantage, came from good stock. He was educated uh, at the famous, uh, the feet of the famous Rabbin Gamaliel. It's like an Ivy League type education, right? From an early age, Paul was crafted into a well-educated and a passionately zealous and disciplined man. At one stage, he was being interrogated uh, by the Jewish council, and he doubles down on his blameless record. He confidently addresses uh, the council rulers. He calls them my brothers, clearly positioning himself as an, ev- as an equal. And he makes the remarkably bold claim. He says that I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. This public declaration of his own good living and his adherence to the law was so bold that the high priest that was standing there ordered the others that were near him to punch him in the mouth, right, smack him in the face. Just like the young ruler, Paul lived an incredibly upright life, doing all the right things, refraining from the wrong things. He was a man of discipline, of self-improvement, and he had such results that he can confidently justify himself in his letters and in his public trials without the risk of being called a hypocrite. And yet, here's the kicker. At the same time, let's read from today's uh, second passage in Romans 7, he says, Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me, for in my inner being I delight in God's law, But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. Making me a prisoner kind of sounds a bit like the troubled heart of that young ruler, doesn't it? Groping around for something to release him. And then hear what Paul says about himself in verse 24. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? How can these two positions be reconciled? He's happy to call himself blameless, and yet at the same time, a wretched man and a prisoner. I'll take it back to the two questions from earlier. How does Paul view Jesus, and how does Paul view himself? Well, originally, Paul saw Jesus in a very similar vein 
to the young man, a capable teacher who clearly had achieved some good results, got some followers, won some people over. Paul wouldn't have used the term good. Uh, Jesus' teachings, his claims and the challenges that he posed to the Pharisees like Paul were a direct affront to Paul's beloved religion and he was a main player and he excelled in it. And so Paul hated Jesus and his followers with a burning fury. But it's interesting when the moment came uh, for Paul's miraculous conversion experience. Remember on the Damascus Road, the risen Christ appears before him and Paul cries out from the ground, Who are you, Lord? The Lord doesn't respond to him with any of the titles that he would be worthy. If we were writing this script, if this was the scene in the movie we were making, we would probably have, it would look impressive and the Lord would respond with something like, I'm the son of God, I am the word that was in the beginning, I am uh, he that sits at the right hand. But no, he simply uses his earthly name, which is the only name that Paul would have ever afforded him because Paul did not know him. And so the Lord says, I'm Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. But here the wonderful change begins, right? So in today's passage, it's perfectly juxtaposed with the rich young ruler. The young ruler, as Paul once did, sees Jesus as just a teacher. But Paul now sees him as saviour, and deliverer. All right, verse 25, thanks be to God who delivers me through Christ Jesus our Lord. No longer Jesus of Nazareth, like he used to call him, but now Christ our Lord. And how does Paul now view himself? Well, as we've seen, there is this strange dichotomy, right? He's perfectly comfortable to speak of his moral character, the upright life that he led, blameless with respect to the law, and fulfilling his duty to God. Yet at the same time, he knows that his true nature is a wretched man. Paul deeply understands that separation between the righteousness that he could achieve and that he once prided himself on and the perfection that God requires. He understands that with himself, it is impossible to change that wretchedness. It's in our very nature. It's like it's in our blood, so to speak. And try as we might, we cannot self-improve. Uh, later on, a bit further on in the passage that we read today from Romans, Paul writes that the mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it. It's the same as saying that it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. But with God, all things are possible, and he will change our very nature. Right, Born again, a whole new creation, the old has gone and the new is here. And so wonderfully now, Paul writes that he's free. Start of uh, chapter 8, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Paul sees himself in two lights, in himself and his own power. Yeah, he's a disciplined man. But he's also a wretched man and a prisoner. But at the same time, and overpowering all of this, he is a free man, rescued from death and no longer condemned. He relies totally on Christ. So how are we going to start our new year? There'll be a whole range of improvements that we want to make, right? Some of us are going to want to get fitter. Others are going to want to read a few more books, read some more of the Bible, dedicate more time to relationships, spend some more time in prayer, three-minute cold showers, uh, two weeks ago, if you were here, Jesse provided us the aspirational goal of eating five prunes. Apparently that is a very high-ranking uh, goal for 2024 for a lot of people on the internet. It's probably 
why we shouldn't spend much time on the internet. They're all good things, the prunes included. But can I suggest that as we enter uh, our routines of 2024, maybe we could reflect on three of the lessons that I found encouraging when looking at these self-improvement champions uh, that we looked at from today's passages. So firstly, failure. Let's enter this year knowing that in Christ we are no longer condemned. If you're anything like me, then you probably know that the aspirational things that you want to achieve this year, the plans that you've put in place in the last couple of weeks, they're probably going to land pretty far below par. They will for me. And that applies to the way that we want to honour God too, doesn't it? How we delight in the law of God in our inmost being. That's the way Paul put it. We want to do the right things, but we always blow out, don't we? We feel frustrated, we feel disappointed, we feel all the things that we naturally get when it comes from failure, from something that we want to achieve. But we should not feel defeated, because there is no condemnation for those of us that are in Christ Jesus. At the start of 2024, let's be thankful that like Paul, uh, we can see ourselves in dual lights. We are people that stumble and that fall and that will fail, but we are also conquerors not through our own improvements, but through Christ's. Uh, Secondly, I was thinking of assurance. Sin has no hold on us, right? That void in his life that that young ruler that had everything couldn't fill, the troubled heart, that fear of missing out, that does not exist for us. Our hope and our destiny is not in our ability to improve ourselves, thankfully. No matter where you might fall on the scale of uh, having discipline and being able to nail your goals, whether you're a rock star like, like Paul and the rich young ruler, or whether you're a fair bit further down the spectrum like myself and you intrinsically know that you're going to fail this year, it doesn't matter because our entire nature has been changed by God. We are entirely new creations. And so uh, in 2024, maybe we can give thanks that the impossible has been made possible and then we can rest we can rest assured that we have peace with God. And finally, I think there's a joyous freedom here, right? Jesse gave a really good sermon two weeks ago, encouraging us to persevere in the race this year. And so let's do that filled with the joy that comes from the freedom that we have in Christ. Unlike all other religions, we are not shackled and we are not weighed down by the requirement to earn our place in the race. That is a horrible and a heavy burden that religion pulls people into. But we can run with freedom and with joy. Ephesians 2 tells us that God has prepared in advance good works for us to do, right? We heard some some really good examples of that this morning. So let's move into this year knowing that, like Jesus told us, uh, Jesse told us, there is a race to be run. Paul told us that, but... uh, There's a race to be run, uh, and it is a race that God has prepared for us and that we can run joyfully free. And through that, hopefully, we can aim to bring uh, glory to our Lord. The assurance, the freedom, and the joy that Paul experiences is the wonderful flip side of that tragic story of the young ruler. And so, loving Father, we thank you uh, that we can start this year knowing that through your Son, you have made the impossible possible, and we are infinitely richer than the young ruler ever was. Amen.